What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And it's your host, Chris. And today we have yet another author who wrote an awesome book. This isn't even his first book, but anyways, the author we'll be speaking to today is none other than Frank Rose. So his newest book is called The Sea We Swim In. All right. And I heard a lot of buzz about this book and I have personally been trying to get better at, uh, you know, understanding like how to be a better storyteller just for my own writing, but also as Frank and I will discuss in this conversation, uh, storytelling is huge for, you know, people who are in, you know, marketing or, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and there's so many different ways that storytelling can help. And it even helps us, you know, get our points across. Like a lot of the conversations we have, you know, on the podcast or with authors about, you know, we talk about like, you know, polarization, misinformation, all that stuff. And in this conversation with Frank, we actually talk about how, you know, uh, misinformation and the stories we tell has, you know, led to issues like QAnon. And this episode was actually recorded a few weeks ago. And I don't know how many of you heard of that tragic story in Santa Barbara, where the father actually killed his young children. And he was, you know, a QAnon believer. And yeah, so stories can be very powerful and suck people in. But there are things that we can use story for that are good, right? So I was interested in this book because my background is in marketing. And even though like I'm into all these different topics and I'm like really big into like psychology and philosophy and social issues and all that, like marketing has a special place in my heart because I am always trying to figure out, right? I'm trying to figure out how do you get this important information in front of the right people and make them care, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why I've been mar in marketing. So in this conversation, you'll hear me talk about how I, you know, work in marketing. Well, I used to, I, uh, at the time we recorded this, I was nice and employed, but since then I got laid off. So by the way, if you want to check down in the description, there are some ways you could support the podcast, but the best thing you could do is just share this podcast with other people, any episodes you like. But anyways, uh, yeah, all of us, if, if you have an important message to share, like Frank and I will talk about, you know, uh, how like charity organizations um, get, you know, their stories out there and what's effective for like raising money and all that. So storytelling is beneficial for just about everybody. And Frank has been researching this stuff for years. He does presentations, he writes books and all that stuff. So anyways, check down in the description below, uh, make sure you're following Frank, grab a copy of this book. And I've linked a couple other resources uh, for Frank, like his website and this really cool, uh, you know, uh, project that they work on too. So check down in the description and down in the description below, um, you'll also find my social media. Make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, because not only do I love talking with all of you, but you'll stay up to date with all the stuff I'm working on, the books I'm reading, upcoming episodes. But yeah, um, for example, I just announced like this new kind of writing project that I'm personally working on. Uh, I've also been putting some more attention on the the books that I've written. Some of you don't even know this, but I have written five books myself and they're over at the rewiredsoul.com. But anyways, I'm doing some more stuff around that. But anyways, check down the description, make sure you're following Frank, make sure you're following me. And if you're new, make sure you are following or subscribed to the podcast. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Frank Rose about his latest book, The Sea We Swim In.
All right. Hello, Frank. How are you doing today? I'm so good. How are you, Chris? I am awesome. And I'm so glad that we get to chat about your book, The Sea We Swim In. I heard a lot about it and I was like, okay, I'll grab it. And I loved it. So uh, for those who haven't met you yet, can you give us a little bit of uh, your background and all that kind of good stuff? Uh, sure. I'm uh, I'm with Columbia University. I uh, lead an executive education seminar called Strategic Storytelling. I've been doing that for uh, for about seven years, and uh, in large part, the book is kind of a distillation of stuff that I've learned and uh, uh, and taught um, during that uh, during that time. Um, but my background before that is really as a journalist. I was a uh, a uh, magazine writer and um, author of several books of of uh, reporting. Uh, before that, I was at Wired magazine for mm. uh, throughout the alts from 1999 to 2009. Um, before that, I was at Fortune and um, uh, various times I was at uh, Premiere, the movie magazine, which unfortunately is no longer with us, but was a great publication. Yeah, uh, and uh, and at Esquire. Yeah. Um- so, so yeah, and, and yeah, you have a ton of experience. And I think one of the reasons I was interested in, in your new book is, you know, the subtitle is how stories work in a data-driven world, right? And, and yeah, I, I was curious, like one of the things is, you know, I've been making content online for a while. I work in marketing and I'm looking at data and, uh, you know, we do branding and all sorts of stuff. So that's one of the reasons I was curious, but, but what, what made you want to write the book? Like when you were like, was there any specific like stories or anything that you saw, like how we're kind of viewing data or how technology has kind of changed the way stories work and how they make us perceive things differently? Sure. Um, the the way technology has changed the way stories work that was really um, uh, something I covered uh, more in my in my previous book, The Art of Immersion, mm. published after uh, the, really an outgrowth of the uh, of the ten years I spent at Wired. Uh, while I was there, I, I sort of focused on um, stories at the intersection of media and technology, mm. which literally be anywhere from Hollywood to cell phones, and uh, and. And at a certain point when I was doing that, in fact, a very particular point when I was interviewing James Cameron, Mm. I started to realize that uh, the way we tell stories changes every time there's a major new communications technology that comes along. It takes people at least 20 or 30 or 40 years to figure out what to do with it, to come up with a a kind of storytelling that is uh, uh, native to that medium. And... Uh, that, uh, uh, so, so that was really the focus of that book. Um, this one is, uh, really a look at how stories are being used by entrepreneurs, by major companies, by startups, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of different people, mm. nonprofits uh, and so forth, um, how they're, how they're being used to, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, for have a, a process of like self-identification. This is you tell stories about yourself, about your customers, about your your products, mm-hmm. uh, and this is something that people really respond to. Uh, people do not respond. I'm sure you know very well to advertising, especially now. Uh, mm-hmm. We we don't want to be interrupted. We don't want to have our TV yeah. shows interrupted. We don't want any of that stuff. 
Uh, if we want to find out about a product, there's endless resources online to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, you know, so the smart companies like, for example, Apple, uh, you know, don't, don't try to do that. They show you, you know, they don't give you the specs of their products. They yeah. show you people using them and people enjoying them and having a great time. So that's, um, uh, how that works and how that's done is is really the focus of the new book. Yeah. So out of curiosity, because yeah, I you know I I work with you know different uh, you know companies or you know entrepreneurs and uh, even even now, right? Uh, I I've been interviewing authors just as this kind of side thing because I love to read and all that. And I've I've noticed that you know it's sometimes it's it's difficult for it to click for some people, right? And and you teach about strategic storytelling. What do you think? What do you what do you think some of the biggest like things that people are missing, like whether it's companies or brands or entrepreneurs, like do they not understand the importance, the value, or is it more of like they know but they just don't have like the tools? And, and I want to dive into some of the elements that you dive into in the book, but mm. do they not? Do they just not know how to do it properly? You know what I mean? Right. Well, it, there's a little bit of both. And, and mm. obviously in some cases, it's more one than the other. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's no secret now that stories are, are, you know, probably the most effective means of communication. Uh, nonetheless, there's, you know, still uh, quite a lot of people who, you know, would dispute that, who, uh, you know, just for one reason or another, don't get it. Um, beyond that, uh, though, there's a question of how to tell a story and a question of understanding what a story really is. Mm. I find that a lot of people who come to the program and we get really smart people. We get people from around the world. This is the Columbia program. We get people from around the world, uh, there, uh, many of them are in, you know, uh, major corporations uh, like uh, AB InBev or Salesforce or Google. Mm -hmm. uh, many of them are entrepreneurs. Many of them are are non are work at nonprofits like uh, you know the Red Cross or or Doctors Without Borders. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, but in in some cases, I find that people just really don't understand what a story is and therefore how it works. And I think the most important thing to know about stories is that they unfold over time. You know, mm. there's a time element to them. Um, you start in one place and as the teller of the story and you end in another place. And that's true of the teller, but it's also true of the listener or the viewer or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and by place, I mean, time is, you know, uh, um, and, and, you know, during that time, something happens, some change occurs, uh, and, mm. and that is, uh, you know, really the essence of storytelling beyond that, you know, that I have a great time, um, uh, you know, showing ads, uh, you know, the, the more, uh, narrative focused ads, so many yeah. of them are, are around now and especially, um, you know, Super Bowl ads. And there's one that's, um, for example, a great, uh, a, a great example of what I'm, what I'm talking about and, and how it can work and be effective. Um, this was the, uh, uh, Volkswagen ad for, I believe it was, uh, in 2013 and it shows a little kid. It's a 60 second spot. Uh -huh. It's obviously available on YouTube and so forth. Um, and it shows a little kid, uh, uh, dressed up as Darth Vader. 
Um, and he's trying to use the force to, you know, wake up his dog and, you know, uh, and various household implements and so forth. Nothing's working. He's getting really frustrated. Yeah. Then his dad drives up and, you know, drives into the driveway. He's driving a new Volkswagen. And um, the kid, uh, you know, his dad gets out, goes into the house. Uh, the kid waves him off. Um, and as soon as, uh, as soon as he gets into the house, uh, as soon as the dad gets into the house, the, the kid looks at the car and puts his hands up and, you know, uses the force and, uh, and the, and the car starts <laughs> yeah. the ignition goes on and, uh, and cut to the kitchen window and his dad is standing there, you know, working the remote <laughs> but, and the kid is really startled. Yeah. And, this is like, you know, one of the most, uh, talked about one of the most shared on social media, uh, uh, Super Bowl ads ever. And, uh, it, you know, it doesn't even mention the, the word Volkswagen until the very end, the, you know, Volkswagen Passat and, and yet it's incredibly effective. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh. You know, that's the kind of thing I love, uh, I, I love showing and talking about. Yeah. So, so that's something I, I, you know, that I was really excited to ask you about because, you know, uh, I, you know, I come from this kind of social, I grew up in the social media age and it seems like things are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Right. So on social media, for example, on Twitter, uh, time is an issue, right? So on Twitter, mm -hmm. if you do a video, you got like, I think two minutes, right? YouTube, you can go forever. You know, um, right. but then TikTok is one of the biggest platforms out there. And yes. before that, before TikTok, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, what was it? Vine. They had six Vine, seconds, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you're talking about these, these, uh, stories, how they unfold over time. And I'm curious, like, like how, how does somebody do that with all these time constraints and the, the shorter attention spans? You know what I mean? Like I was just mm -hmm. having a conversation the other day about how we just go, 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 go. And if you take too long, you might lose them. So how do we kind of balance that? Like taking the time to tell the story on these types of platforms? Right. Well, one thing is, you know, you're not telling it in real time. So, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. So there's lots of, uh, the, there's lots of, uh, tricks you can use to, uh, um, you know, cut out, uh, the, you know, what happens in the meantime, what you really want to show is the beginning and the end and the, and the middle can be as long or as short as you want it to, uh, or as would be effective. Um, and you know, I, I have a friend in, uh, in Brighton, England named Matt Locke, who, uh, is a, now that, you know, we're doing our Columbia program virtually. Uh, one of the, one of the benefits of that is that I can have guest speakers from all over the world. Mm. And so, um, he's become a frequent, uh, guest speaker and, uh, he's a former BBC, uh, new media executive and, and, and channel four after that. And now he runs a, a consultancy called story things. And he has, uh, uh, one of the things we go over in, in the class is this idea that he has about. Uh, formats. He has, uh, you know, he's spent a long time researching formats and what he's pointed out is that it's not just that, uh, you know, we've gone from say half hour or hour long TV shows to, uh, you know, 30 seconds or 60 second, um, uh, videos. Um, uh, 
that's happened. But at the same time, the other thing, the other extreme has happened, which is, mm. you know, uh, TV shows by Game of Thrones that go oh, on yeah. years, uh, or, um, uh, or something that's, you know, dropped on Netflix. I'm, I'm watching right now this incredible, um, Israeli production called Hit and Run. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, I think there are nine hour long episodes and oh, wow. I can't watch more than one a night because it's too intense. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, but, but, you know, we, we commit ourselves to things that really grab us that really, really interest us and things that, you know, interest us less or that, you know, don't really deserve that kind of treatment. You know, we want to get over them quickly. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, again, I think they're, I, I think both, both things are right. Um, I think the secret of, of telling stories in a super, uh, compact way, you know, for something like, uh, TikTok, um, is, is to, um, you know, is to compact it, you know, to, to just, you can make it really short. Um, you don't have to, uh, you know, put in everything that happened. You keep the focus very, very tight and, uh, and show the beginning, show, show the end, show what yeah. results. And, uh, and then as I say, the, the middle can be, uh, as long or as short as, uh, as it seems right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something I, I've tried to keep in mind. So for example, like before the podcast, when I was, you know, doing YouTube and usually it was about like 10 to 15 minutes. I tried to keep my, you know, mm -hmm. but I would try to think of like, you know, beginning, middle end type, type yeah. stuff. But, but yeah, I, I guess this is a perfect transition to kind of discuss some of the elements that you, you discuss in the book and, and you kind of start out with like the author and the audience, you know, and those are like mm -hmm. the two the two main things, right? right? So, so how, how does like the author affect the story aside from just, you know, them being the one who write it, like, what are some things that people should keep in mind as the author and then, and then keeping in mind the audience too, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Exactly. No, that's, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is the author is who are you? You know, what is your identity? How do you identify yourself? What do you want to convey? And why are you telling this story? Mm. You know, what's your, what's your goal? What's your, uh, you know, purpose in doing this? What do you want to accomplish? And in order to accomplish it, uh, you know, you have to know about your audience as well. So, you know, obviously there are things like, uh, you know, what's the best medium to reach them in? Is it uh, mm. TikTok video or is it, uh, you know, a blog post or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and beyond that, I think there are questions about, you know, do you, to what extent do you resemble the audience? And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. There's been a lot of neuroscience and cognitive psychology research uh, in the last 20 years or so. And that's something that I really like to uh, focus on in the, yeah. in the Back Ed program. Um, because one thing it shows is that, um, well, it shows basically how people respond to stories, uh, how stories work in the brain. And there are a couple of really important things to keep in mind there. One, I think, is that uh, um, one is that we understand stories by projecting ourselves into them. Mm. 
you know, sort of imaginatively projecting that. So mm-hmm. there's been experiments that show how this works. But if, if you haven't been to a horror movie, you understand instinctively what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you, you uh, objectively, you realize that you're sitting in the seat with a bunch of other people in a movie theater and nothing probably too bad is going to happen. Um, but that still doesn't keep you from being scared out of your wits. And, yeah. and that's a, that's a, a product of being immersed in the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, another thing, um, really fascinating, um, uh, experiment result, um, that I've come across is, um, uh, there's a, there's a, a woman named Melanie Green who teaches at uh, New York um, State University at Buffalo and she did a thesis on um, uh, basically what happens when people are more or less immersed in a story. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she had them read the story. It was a very intense, short, violent story. And, um, and then she, you know, asked some questions about it and she had come up with this, you know, like uh, elaborate scale to, to measure how immersed they were in the story. And what she found was, that the more immersed they were, the more likely the story was to have to change their attitudes about something. Mm. Um, and uh, she she did two different versions of the story. And in one version, it was formatted as a newspaper article, so it was factual. And another version, it was formatted as a as a short story. Um, and you know the text was exactly the same. So. Uh, she, because she wanted to find out if you know where people, if people were told it's true or false, what does what does that do? Mm. And found that makes no difference whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think is a really uh, interesting thing to keep in mind. And there's there's one other that I I a set of experiments that I find really interesting that that suggests that the more the audience resembles ourselves, the more likely they are to, to respond to the story, mm. um, or, or, you know, not necessarily resembles the author, but resembles the, like the main character say. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, if the audience is, uh, is, is, uh, different from the, from the main character, if the main character is say, uh, you know, black and the audience is mainly white or if the main character is gay, um, if you uh, introduce that fact later in the story, then it has um, very little effect. Mm. Um, you know that that uh, you, because by that time people have you know have sort of thrown themselves imaginatively into the story. They've sort of bonded with the character, and the fact that the uh. character is different from them uh, doesn't make as much difference. So yeah. I find that totally fascinating. Yeah, I've I've always found that that interesting too. Uh, when you like uh, coming from like a YouTube background and really seeing like uh, kind of the parasocial relationships and the audiences people grow, mm-hmm. and because uh, YouTube, what you know, what really took off on YouTube was kind of like they call them story time videos where a person would tell this story and it felt like because I, I would always just sit and be like, who's their audience? Who's watching this? And it's people. <laughs> Who could relate to it right the people who's like oh i have friends like that or i've been in this this situation but yeah your stuff in the book about immersion and i, I realize you have a whole book on immersion too but like in the book you talk about like this i think what was it it was like a, a play or a movie where they like bring people in 
like to like the woods or something and like completely immerse them in there. Like we were watching uh, my son, uh, my son, my girlfriend and I, we were watching Blair Witch Project. Uh-huh. Uh, like, yeah. And I was like thinking about that because uh, yeah, just right. hearing the backstory behind it and everything. But, but when we're writing or we're doing something on social media, we can't like bring somebody in like that. So I guess, I guess here's a question for you because you talk a little bit about conspiracies and QAnon and stuff like that mm-hmm. in the book. Right. Do you think like, or could you explain like, like we just recently had a story about the father in Santa Barbara who killed his two young children uh, and, you know, he followed QAnon and everything. Like how, how do you see conspiracies or QAnon conspiracies getting people immersed? Like what are they doing? How are they connecting with people in that way that they become so entrenched in it? Do you think? Yeah, that's really, really a fascinating question. And, uh, I'm glad you asked it. I, I think that, you know, there are a couple of things that work, but, um, but one of the main things is that people, uh, people start to feel that, you know, if they're, if they're buying into a conspiracy theory and, and, you know, there has to be some, something to the theory that maybe appeals to them. And also there's, uh, you know, often in a case like this, it's not like they buy into the whole thing at once. As, as one person told me, you know, we find a little crack in your belief system mm. and then, you know, pretty soon you're, you're a full on flat earther, you know, like flat earthers have become a yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like unbelievable. And, uh, um, so, so, uh, you know, there's that, but there's also, you know, once you, once you start to buy into this, it's like you, you begin to feel that you hold some special knowledge. You know, mm. and, and like the phrase that, that keeps being repeated is I've done my homework. You know, I've done my homework. I, I know all of this stuff that you don't know. Yeah. Because, you know, you haven't bought into this crackpot theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and there's, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's been pointed out that uh, there's a real uh, connection there between how this works and how alternate reality games uh, work. If you recall, uh. alternate reality games ARGs were, uh, you know, not so big right now, but 10 years ago, uh, seven or eight years ago, they were a very big thing. And what's happened now is that just the landscape has shifted and they've almost become, you know, part of the landscape. Um, but, um, but these alternate reality games that were, uh, mm-hmm you know, about something like, you know, often they were tied to a movie like, you know, a Batman, one of the, you know, Batman films, for example. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are all these, um, you know, the rabbit holes and their clues and their, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and there develops a very avid, you know, following for one of these things. And, you know, potentially numbering in the millions of people and they're, you know, again, they're, uh, you know, chasing some, uh, some, some sense that they're in, in command of a special knowledge. Now, mm-hmm. in most cases, you know, they realize that there's not like actually that um, yeah. but, uh, but, but something like this, which purports to be true, um, you know, QAnon say, is, uh, you know, is a different matter altogether. And of course there are cult-like aspects to it too. I mean, obviously, I mean, I've read about, you know, the man in Santa Barbara, uh, a horrifying story, 
Um, but you know, that's like verging on Jonestown, right? That's yeah. Like, you know, um, uh, people who are, who become like thoroughly brainwashed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because there's like, you know, the emergent, then there's just like spiraling kind of, kind of yeah. downwards, you know? And I guess that's, that's one of the concerns, especially with, you know, just, uh, in general with like politics and stuff like that, like, uh, because storytelling could be used for good or it could be used for bad, right. Depending mm -hmm. on what story, uh, you're telling people, but, uh, you mentioned like, you know, like nonprofits and, you know, people who are out there trying to do good. And I, I can't, I've heard about the study multiple times, but they've talked about like the identifiable victim effect, right? Like when we right. just throw numbers at people and just say, Hey, there's thousands of starving children. They're like, eh, but if like, Hey, this little girl, this specific little girl, she's from here. She's this old and da 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 da. It sucks them in a little bit better. Yeah. So. So, uh, through, through your work, like, is there, do you see like nonprofits and organizations who are trying to do good? Are they like kind of grasping this storytelling thing? Are they still facing challenges? Like, how do you, how do you see that? For example, right now, there's all this, there's, you know, a bunch of political debates about stuff going on in the world with Afghanistan and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But for people right. who want to do something, you know, what, what do you, from what you've seen, like, what, is there anything they're missing or that they can improve on when it comes to their storytelling? You know, it really is a question of focusing on individuals. So, you know, mm -hmm. numbers, we, we just don't respond to numbers. And, you know, that's part of the idea besides, you know, stories in a data-driven world, right? Yeah. You know, we, we think it's all about data, and certainly data is important. Um, and, you know, it's important to tell stories through data sometimes. But, you know, numbers are not going to move anybody. The thing about stories is that they're primarily emotional. They appeal to the emotion and numbers do not, mm. you know, cold, hard facts do not. There's a reason they're called cold and hard, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, this was, uh, th there have been, as you say, a number of studies on this, uh, identifiable victim effect and, uh, you know, time and again, they show that when you show a single. Uh, you know, starving child in Africa, say, um, people really respond to it. When you show, you know, when you say there are, you know, thousands of them, you know, people just sort of tend to throw up their hands. What kind yeah. of, what difference can I possibly make? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a really good example of a, of a nonprofit now that has used this to, I think, very good effect. It's mm. Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is, uh, as you probably know, one of the leading cancer hospitals in the world. It's here in New York City. And uh, it has uh, a reputation, this is sort of an aside, it has a reputation as a, a, a place that is technically very, very good. You know, like the chances of survival are probably better there than just about anywhere else. Um, but at the same time, pretty cold, you know, like there's not a lot of, uh, uh warm and fuzzy that yeah. happens there, or at least that's the reputation. And you can see why, why that would be the staff, of course, has to, you know, uh, sort of arm themselves against, uh, you know, being too involved because, you know, their patients are going to either die or they're going to get healthy and go away. And, you yeah. Know, um, it's a really tough position to be in, but 
um, what, what they did, what Sloan Kettering did was a series um, called Patient Stories. And I mm. first became aware of this when I saw a full page ad in the Sunday New York Times magazine. Uh, but, um, and it had a big picture and it had a little bit of text and it told the story about a specific patient. And so I went online, I went to their website and they have like dozens and dozens at this point of these patient stories. Each one is an individual. Each one is somebody who is fighting a specific kind of cancer. Um, and you hear from the individual and you hear from, uh, you know, his or her doctor, um, you hear from, uh, you know, their spouse or whatever. And, um, it's, uh, uh, it's totally fascinating because you really, you know, you start to bond with these people, you know, during the, during the course of the stories, as I say, some of them are just text. Some of them are, are videos of, you know, as long as five or six minutes. Um, and, um, uh, uh, it's, it's really remarkable how, you know, how it impacts you and, uh, you know, uh, like. Along the way, they give you a, a few, you know, they show you how uh, the doctor did this or that and made this or that decision and what mm. like. But the real impact is uh, personal and emotional. And, you know, I can't stress the word emotion enough because, yeah. you know, that's what, that's really what it's all about. And stories appeal to the emotions. We have this idea that we're rational people. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of evidence to the contrary. Uh, and, yeah. Know, my, my feeling about that is that, uh, uh, our, 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 you know, belief that we're rational is, is itself, you know, basically emotional. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, but, but that's a, I think a very good example of how, mm. um, a nonprofit, you know, with limited resources, limited budget can, you know, tell an effective story. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, you know, speaking of, you know, that, that idea that we're rational in the, in the book, you talk about some of, uh, Dan Ariely's research or Daniel Kahneman, right. you know, Dan, Dan Ariely, his book is predictably irrational and, right. and all that. And, Cause that's something I got really fascinated. I'm like, why are people doing this? And like starting to learn about all these like biases and juristics and, and all that kind of stuff. But with what you're saying too, that makes sense about that organization, because something that I notice that I notice all the time, and I think it's just completely wild is GoFundMe, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I think GoFundMe is a perfect example of how storytelling can raise a bunch of money because for example, the most recent one I can remember was one when the eviction moratorium was expiring or whatever, there was a mm -hmm. local woman here in Las Vegas, but the story went national. And she was talking like she has kids and, you know, she's about to get evicted and they raised like tens of thousands of dollars. Right. And I'm like, right. that, I was like, that would pay her rent for the next X amount of years. Meanwhile, there's millions of people who are facing this, but it shows how that, that focus on the individual and telling mm -hmm. that story and building that emotional connection, you mm -hmm. know, can really, yeah. you know, rise it up. So I, I don't know if organizations need to start like just doing that strategy and like saying, Hey, Hey, here, here, here. Um, you know, what's interesting, actually, uh, I was working at a drug and alcohol rehab for a little while. And something we did was we would, uh, we had a, a little podcast with people who graduated from the program and they would share their stories and stuff like that. And huh. they, people really enjoyed that. Some people would come to treatment and say, Hey, I heard this person's story or whatever. And, you know, uh, I, I guess that's, you know, that's, that's a great example from, uh, 
you know, recovery programs. Like I got sober in 2012 and now that I'm thinking about it, it was hearing people's stories uh -huh, and right. me being able to connect. Look, now your books make it even more sense to me, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Oh, but speaking about irrational, there was something I wanted to ask you about because I, I think you could explain it way better than I can. But in the book, you talk about the narrative fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. Can you right. kind of explain what that is and the irrationality that we get into? Because I, I also think your book's beneficial because it helps people kind of be like, oh, oh, maybe I might be getting screwed <laughs> up in my head. So can you can you chat a little bit about uh, the narrative fallacy? Yeah, the narrative fallacy, if I, if I remember correctly, that's a phrase that was used by um, uh, 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 Nassim Taleb. Yeah. And um, uh, who is suddenly fascinating. And... Uh, it's basically the idea that, uh, you know, whatever happens, we're going to weave a narrative around it. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I got, one of the people that I got really um, involved in it, increasingly as I, as I taught the course and then as I wrote the book, um, is uh, the psychologist Jerome Bruner. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, Bruner uh, was one of the... You know, he's, he's not terribly well-known um, today, but throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, he was one of the most influential psychologists in the world. He was one of the leaders of cognitive psychology, which was the rebellion against behaviorism. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in the mid-80s, he started to argue that we need, that uh, scientists need to pay attention to stories. And that was, it was subsequent to that when, uh, you know, what, when research and, and storytelling and narratives, uh, you know, really began in mm. psychology and neuroscience. Um, but, um, but this idea that, well, uh, the, the fact that you can, um, you can weave a story about anything most, uh, you know, importantly about yourself and about what happens to you and about, you know, what you believe, um, you know, Oliver Sacks was, uh, yeah. you know, one of the first exponents of that. He was, you know, started writing around the same mid eighties, around the same time as, uh, uh, as Bruner and, uh, uh, Robert Coles, the, uh, psychologist, um, wrote a fascinating book that's largely about that in, in, uh, in the 90s, early 90s. Um, uh, and if you look at um, uh, Yuval Harari, uh, you know, there's this, um, there's a sense that he, he really sort of, you know, rolls it all together, I think. Um, mm. There's a sense of, of how your identity as a person is really bound up in the stories that you tell yourself about yourself and about your circumstances and the world that you live in. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really critical. Uh, and it really all has to do with the idea that, uh, you know, that we use stories to create, um, our own reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like a more off the shelf reality. They're, they're just a, a mechanism that we use to understand a place in the world and how we're supposed to function. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really interesting because you know I, I I think about like like you, I'm really interested in the psychology aspect and the neuroscience and stuff like that. But the stories, you know, since our brains are prediction machines and we have this need for control and we fill in gaps and you know you could see how conspiracies mm -hmm. go. I was watching right. this one uh, scientist who debunks kind of misinformation about like COVID and vaccines and stuff, and he put it perfectly. He was saying that this person who he was commenting on, their gaps in knowledge, their brain is just filling that in with stories right. and explanations. And that could that could screw us up. But I think it's more important. I think it's so important on like a personal level, too, because, say, for example, I call someone and they don't pick up. Right. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, they hate me. They did that. Right. <laughs> like our brain right. will just right. make up these stories. So I think that's one of the reasons I find storytelling interesting as well, because it could screw up relationships even you know what right. i mean right. so um let, let let me ask you this like uh on that topic is there something is there is there a way that we can like check in with ourselves and see if we're falling into like a narrative fallacy like like how right. do we how do we prevent that or avoid that so we don't lose our minds at work or something like that sure i think i mean you know the kind of paranoia that you described is i mean that's a classic case right uh, and we've all felt that, you know, we've all had that response. Um, and I, I think the, the best thing you can do for it is to just kind of step back and say, you know, do a, do a reality check on yourself, yeah. right? And say, you know, does this actually make sense? Uh, or, you know, maybe somebody is trying to avoid you or maybe, you know, their e your email got lost in their spam folder, yeah. you know, uh, which is probably more likely. Um, and, um, certainly it has happened to me a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, uh, so, so yeah, I think you just need to, you know, grab a hold of yourself, um, stand back and, you know, think about something, uh, you know, we, we are capable of thinking rationally yeah. uh, and, um, uh, and, and not just go with, you know, like the first emotion that comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that. Absolutely. That's like the, the best thing I've learned is just to pause and kind of question, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> things like that. But right. uh, yeah, I, I, I have a few more questions for you, Frank. And one of the things since you know, since you do work with like businesses and entrepreneurs and everything, and one, one great, what one great example of a bad example that you give in the book is the Pepsi ad that they did with what was it, Kylie Jenner? It was one of the Jenners, right? Right. right. And mm -hmm. it went terrible. They thought they were telling the story of like hope and connection and it backfired right. so bad. So so for for anybody out there, because a lot of people like, you know, they're they're on social media or maybe they're authors or maybe they're businesses and they're promoting their brand. What what's the biggest takeaway from brands like Pepsi who who screw up with their storytelling? Where where does it go wrong in your opinion? Yeah, well, um, as it's often the case, it's more than one place. <laughs> but I'd say, you know, I'd say that there, there are two, probably two, uh, um, you know, definite inflection points where something like this can go wrong. And the first is, you know, just your your basic research. Like, do you understand your audience? Let's get back to who is your audience, right? And uh, and if you if you really understand them, then you're not going to make a tremendous faux pas, like, you know, having a, a, you know, building an ad, building a, 
soda pop ad around a, you know, sort of meaningless demonstration uh, at a time when uh, people are, are in the streets with, you know, because of Black Lives Matter, because Black people are getting killed. Yeah. Um, you know, they're getting shot by police, by, uh, you know, sometimes random individuals who are, you know, acting like, like they think they're police yeah. uh, and so forth. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's sort of like trying to, it's sort of like you conflate, um, you know, seriousness with fun and they're just not the same thing. Yeah. And the, and the other place where people go wrong is they don't listen. They don't listen to mm. companies in particular or any large organization. They don't listen to dissenting voices. There, you know, I know people who were at Pepsi, um, at the time, mm. and, um, there was a sizable contingent of, uh, you know, people in PR and marketing and so forth there who, uh, you know, just felt that this ad was going to be a disaster, but. Uh, the CEO had bought into it and the CEO, mm. was, you know, like it was, uh, um, it was an odd mix of sort of a purpose driven, but also top down, uh, company mm -hmm. and, um, and if the CEO bought into it, then it's like nobody who really had, uh, authority was gonna, you know, was gonna take it off, you know, mm -hmm. was gonna, was gonna say let's rethink this let's step step back mm. and so so i think that's a you know that's just a really critical example of of how you can go wrong if you don't know your audience and if you don't listen to uh dissenting voices in your own organization it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that you have to follow the dissenting voices it just means that you have to you have to listen to people yeah, take it into consideration. That that's interesting, you know, that you bring that up. I've had I've had some authors on here, you know, discussing, you know, books on like, you know, uh conflict or decision making and stuff. And like one of the main things is, you know, uh, you need like some kind of devil's advocate. Like even in the best case scenario, you need somebody who's in there to say, here's the worst case scenario, right? Because I think all of us, no matter where you're working or what you're working on, you can get trapped in this kind of bubble too. Like mm -hmm. uh, that Pepsi example, that's just one. It seems like you probably notice it all the time. There's a different brand doing this every other week, right? Like <laughs> right. just la last year during, uh, you know, all the Black Lives Matter protests and everything. There were companies just coming in and, you know, every other day there was something that's like, are you, do you guys not have anybody paying attention? So that's interesting hearing that there are people in Pepsi like, hey, this might not be a good idea because then it's something else where, you know, they're not listening to that voice or, or whatever it is. But I think that's one of the most important things and something that I do. I try, to, I try to bounce ideas off a few people, be like, let me know if this is terrible because I might be telling myself the wrong story. <laughs> You right, know, right, exactly. There's a, you know, like the false consensus bias and stuff. We think all these people agree with us and so many things, but like, here's, here's, here's my last question for you, Frank, that I've been wondering about for days. And I, and it was another <laughs> reason I was excited to talk to you. And I don't even know if you have the answer, but I read so many books, right? I, uh, you know, and it's not that I don't like stories. I love like, you know, watching movies with my son. I love movies, but with books, I'm strictly nonfiction, but what I've noticed, and I, I even noticed it this morning with one of the books I'm reading, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of like stories, like, like a biography or a mm. history book. Right. But mm. I enjoy, you know, I enjoy books that like 
like for example, like yours, it kind of sprinkles in stories with research and studies. So I guess mm. I'm trying to figure out, is there something wrong with me or should I be looking for specific <laughs> types of books? You know, because if I'm like that, I'm sure there's others like that. So if somebody's writing or telling a story, maybe they should think about their audience and kind of balance it a little bit. You know mm. what I mean? So I, I don't yeah. know if you have any information about that that can help clear my mind a little bit. You know, well, I, I mean, obviously there are, you know, people have, uh, have preferences and, and, and that's totally fine. I think there's, you know, there, there seems to be a, a fairly big market now for, for books that, you know, as you'd say, are, you know, tell us something about ourselves, um, mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, about the, uh, you know, the world that we live in. And often it's, um, you know, it can be a book that, in, um, you know, that has, uh, you know, various stories sprinkled throughout it, which is sort of what I did, yeah, um, or what, what I did here, uh, or it, you know, can be a book like, um, you know, there's a, there's a current bestseller about the pandemic and, you know, what's, what's happening there, mm -hmm. um, focuses on a single person, but, um, the, I, I'd like to make a case for fiction. Um, I think a good fiction is. Uh, really a great thing to pay attention to. Yeah. And it's funny, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a quite valid question that's been asked a lot. What, why do we tell ourselves stories that we know aren't true? You know, huh. what, yeah. why, why do we do this? And if you go back to the very early days of the novel in the 17th and 18th century, uh, you know, that was a criticism that was leveled against novelists, you know, mm. like, uh, you know, the novel in, in 18th century England uh, was considered um, uh, a form of history, but an inferior form because it wasn't true, mm -hmm. right? And um, But the thing is, um, novels, if they're really good, if they're really well done, can teach us truths about ourselves. And they do it kind of by indirection, um, which I think can be very effective. In other words, they don't like lay out a thesis. They... Mm -hmm they show what happens, right? That's what a really good novel does. Um, and um, uh, there's a, you know, one example that I can think of off the top of my head, I mean, the many great novels. I love Sally Rooney's Normal People. Um, mm. I love, um, uh, well, any number of them. Um, but there's a, um, uh, uh, Ian McEwen book called um, On On Shuttle Beach, and I I have to say I haven't read the story. I've seen the movie. It's a pretty great movie. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, it's about a young guy who is um, about to get married to someone, and she uh, reacts negatively to uh, you know to him at a certain point, and he's very vulnerable about it. Has to do with sex. And he's very vulnerable about, about it. And, you know, he dumps her. Mm. And then, uh, you know, spoiler alert, um, cut to the end. And he's in an audience, see the performer. He's in an audience watching her perform. And he tears the rolling down his, his cheek. It's like maybe 20 years later. Uh, and, uh, and there's a song by Ball Boy, the, the Scottish group, that that I love that sort of, you know, says that same thing if I, you know, there's a line in there and I'm, I'm going to mangle it, but there's a line <laughs> that something like, uh, you know, you, you, 
you're going to grow old and hate your younger self, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> for the, for the mistakes you made, for the things you did wrong. We all make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the kind of thing that a really good, you know, novel or short story or movie, you know, fictional uh, story of any sort can do. And, you know, I think it's to draw us into somebody's world and show us, you know, indirectly, um, uh, what's going on there, how, you know, how it can be compared to what's happening with us, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. I, I think, I think fiction is, um, is really valuable. Um, and, um, uh, but I'm glad you like uh, uh, this kind of book too. Yeah, no, I'm I'm thinking about it too because there are some like nonfiction type books that I've read where it's just like a story, and you know, journalists actually they they're some of the best who do this, and they'll tell a mm-hmm. story, but it does give you that kind of immersion. Like I'm thinking about. Uh, uh, Susanna Cahalan wrote a book last year called The Great Pretender, and it was about uh, the experiments and uh, around um, on being sane in insane places. Uh, what's his name? Mm. Rosenhan, right? But she was uh. really good at telling that. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I usually don't like this type of book. So maybe maybe it's just a stylistic thing, like for me personally, like when I look at right. like, because there's some who just draw me in. Right now, for example, I'm reading a book on a, and it's a collection of personal essays. And I'm really enjoying it. So, so yeah, I might just have right. like a preference for certain writing styles and all that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Frank, thank you so much for coming on. And and yeah, your book is currently out. I listen to it on audio, so I know it's in audio format. But but yeah, so I'm gonna link that down below. But where where can people find you and your work and what you're working on and anything coming up in the sure. future? Sure. Uh, well, let's see. There's a couple of things I do, but you can find uh, information on all of it at uh, frankrose.com, um, mm-hmm. my, my website. Um, you can uh, follow me on LinkedIn um, uh, or Twitter. And uh, there's uh, another organization that I'm very much involved with called the Digital Storytelling Lab at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have an awards program called we call it the digital dozen we named 12 uh storytelling projects every year that uh you know that that really sort of advance the art somehow mm. and um <clears throat> the art and the technology and uh you can find out about them at digitaldozen.io uh yeah. so uh, i i recommend it as sort of a fun place to explore yeah that's awesome i'm, I'm gonna as soon as we get off this call i'm gonna go check it out <laughs> but yeah frank okay. thank Thank you so much for coming on. I love chatting with you. And yeah, we will do it when when the next book comes out. Okay, great. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Frank Rose. And he's such a he's such a cool, knowledgeable guy. But yeah, I hope you gained a lot from that conversation. And you understand how even if you're not like a writer, right? Or even if ne- uh, you won't necessarily use this for like business, there's a lot of benefits to understanding the art of storytelling. All right. Because like I said, you know, in the intro of this thing, one of the reasons that, you know, I'm always trying to learn more about the psychology of marketing isn't so I can just run out there and sell stuff, but there's so many people out there and you might be one of them, or you know, somebody who is where you have an important message or you're working on something important that can help a lot of people, 
But none of that stuff matters if we can't get it in front of people and make them care. You've probably heard me talk about it with many of the guests. So many of the guests on here, whether we're talking about, you know, misinformation or social issues or politics or polarization or, you know, just anything else. And I'm like, how do we get people to care about this? And it's something I'm always thinking of and something I, I talk with authors about a lot on the side is like, okay, who can benefit the most from your book? How do I get in front of uh get your book in front of them and make them care. And a lot of it has to do with what Frank's talking about, this art of storytelling. So make sure you check down in the description below, make sure you're following Frank, grab a copy of this book and check out the websites I linked down below. All right, but yeah, while you're in the description, make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, books I'm reading. I also announce future guests because, like I said, I record these like two to three weeks in advance typically, so you'll stay in the know. And I actually have a lot of really cool authors coming on, so make sure you're following me, all right? But yeah, as I mentioned earlier, there are some great ways you can support the podcast that are absolutely 1,000% free. And here are three easy things that you can do. One, make sure you're following the podcast or subscribe, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you listen on, all right? Two, share these episodes, all right? Share these episodes. If you found this episode interesting or any other one, make sure you're sharing it over on social media, all right? And lastly, lastly, I know a lot of you listen on different platforms and all that, but regardless, like take two seconds head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. All of these things that really help out the podcast, they help us reach a broader audience and grow this lovely little community, all right? But some other ways that you can help support the podcast uh, down in the description, as I mentioned, I have self-published some books. They're over at therewiredsoul.com. That's linked down below, as well as if you wanna become a patron. And there's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, in this conversation, Frank and I talked about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves. And this is something I learned a lot about through therapy. And I've personally used BetterHelp Online Therapy. So check it out. It's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. So check it out if it sounds like something you could benefit from. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Frank for coming on to talk about his book. And I hope you all... Have a wonderful rest of your day and stay tuned because tomorrow we have another brand new episode and I'm not sure which one's going up yet, but either way, it's going to be awesome. So stay tuned. All right. So thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you next time.